Well, it's President's Day on the line of fire, and boy, do we have a lot of ground to cover in the Word. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey friends, welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. I posted this on Wednesday of last week on my Ask Dr. Brown Facebook page and on Dr. Michael L. Brown, Dr. Michael L. Brown Twitter page. And I said, do you have a big Bible or theology question? In in other words, not, not a question about a specific verse or word, but a larger question. Post it here now. I'll answer as many of your questions as possible on Monday's Line of Fire broadcast. Well, within an hour of posting it, because I thought, you know, just get a handful of like big questions and not so much specific verse questions, but bigger theology questions. And as of about an hour after posting it, kind of like between Facebook and Twitter, probably 85, 90 questions. And a lot of them are great and major. So God willing, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start tackling these today. So so I'm not giving out a phone number. Don't call today. I'm going to start tackling these today. Maybe, don't know yet, but maybe I'll tackle a bunch more tomorrow. And then maybe some more on Friday. Because these are great questions. And some of them I I really need to think about how I am going to answer. But let's, um, let's start with some Facebook questions here. And I'm going to scroll down. And let's see here. All right. Start with one from Michael. I'm an historic premillennial. That's, that's, or premillennialist. That'd be my position. That Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom on the earth for a thousand years with Israel at the center. After that, we enter into eternity. But I'm not a dispensationalist. I don't believe in a pre-trib rapture, etc. So that's similar to Michael's position. But I see the post-millennial view of Matthew 28, 18 through 20, that the commission must impact every nation. Also, that Messiah reigns now, as stated in Psalm 110, is this problematic? Can one have a victorious eschatology while being historic premillennial? Can one truly believe that all authority is given to Messiah in heaven and on earth, and heaven and on earth now? Yeah, Michael, that's my position. I I hold to a victorious eschatology. I believe the gospel will cover the earth. I, I believe there'll be a multitude from the nations that no one could number. I believe there'll be a massive turning of the Jewish people at the end of the age, in the midst of all hell breaking loose as well. Uh, just as one part of the world can be totally dark and another part of the world can be totally light. You look at the globe and one part's dark, the other part's light. Same way, I believe there's going to be great darkness and in the midst of it, great light. So yes, I, I see parallel extremes at the end. Now, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, a post-millennial view says this, when Jesus says, make disciples of the nations, that the nations, all the nations will be completely discipled so that the whole world will become, quote, Christian before Jesus returns. So we will have basically a millennial age after which Jesus returns, hence post-millennial. I appreciate the victorious note, the confidence in God. I appreciate the confidence in the power of the gospel. That is all very positive to me scripturally, and yet I don't believe that scripture says that the entire world will be saved or will get saved 
I see clearly passages about the harvest and the age being a division between good and evil, saved and lost right up until the end very clearly. And you can read Make Disciples of the Nations uh, a couple of different ways. One is, at a very nation, you make people into disciples. The other is, you turn every nation into a disciple. You could argue either way from the Greek. As far as the emphasis on Jesus reigning now, that, that our millennialists would hold to and say the millennial is just, the millennium is just a spiritual thing that's taking place now. I, I agree that Jesus is ruling and reigning and his rule and reign is extending, but we pray for the final manifestation of his kingdom. We pray for him to come and return and set up his kingdom here. So I, I emphasize these same truths, Michael. I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, let's see. Why the book, Kettle wants to know why the book of John and Matthew, et cetera, is still unknown author. Uh, Unknown according to some, but the very, very consistent, very, very consistent testimony we have from the early church is that Matthew the disciple wrote Matthew and John the disciple wrote John. I know that there are critical theories against this, but you have attestation after attestation and reference after reference after reference that Matthew wrote Matthew and John wrote John. Hence, they've been known as the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of John. You have some other books where there's a bit more dispute about authorship and things like that, but there's consistent testimony that Matthew wrote Matthew and John wrote John. I don't believe they're unknown at all, for sure. Uh, Joshua, was incest sinful before the giving of the Mosaic Law? If so, when did it become sinful? Well, we know it's first mentioned as sinful in Leviticus 18, and, and it's something that is detestable in God's sight and then reiterated in a number of other passages, but Leviticus 18 being the strongest and the clearest. So that's, that's number one. Was it always sinful? Well, obviously not, because to populate the world, initially there had to be human beings, Adam's sons and daughters, that were married and had children. All right, So a brother would have to marry a sister, at least the very first generation. And we also know that, generally speaking, it's over a period of time that incestuous relations produce problems, etc. I mean, obviously, it can happen Im immediately. It can be a health issue uh, immediately. But obviously, the way God made us and wired us, that in that first generation or two, there had to be relations that we would consider incestuous today. But those are the only candidates on the earth. Their brother, you know, Adam and Eve have a son, have a daughter, and they would have to have sexual relations. Now, it could be that there were different sons and daughters, and, and then you get second, third generation, but still they've got to, they've got to intermarry at some point. We know that Jacob, not by his choice, ends up marrying two sisters, which is forbidden. And by the way, a little tidbit here. God births the children of Israel out of marriages that would later be considered sinful. In other words, God is a redeemer. God is constantly working, not based on our righteousness, but based on his righteousness. The day we boast in our own righteousness is the day we make a big and fatal mistake. So at what point was it considered sinful? We know for sure, Leviticus 18. Before that, were there traditions passed on? Was there consciousness among God's people? Was conviction rising? That is speculation. Speculation. But certainly is put in writing for the first time in Leviticus, the 18th chapter. Uh, Ryan, I know you talked about it a lot, but I'm still confused about the subject, and that is, is predestination biblical or not? Thank you in advance. Well, the Bible certainly talks about predestination. 
So it's certainly biblical. The question is, what does it mean by predestination? It doesn't mean that in a Calvinist sense, God looks at humanity and looks at you and for nothing good in you and, and no choice you made, but simply his choice. He chooses you. You have a twin brother, but he chooses to pass over that twin brother and chooses to have mercy on you, not for anything you deserve, but simply as an expression of his goodness. And he now predestines you to be saved, to be righteous, and to follow him and to never fall away or to never ultimately fall away and to be with him for eternity. Predestined in that sense, uh, I don't believe that because that's not how I understand God's choosing and that's not how I understand God's predestining. Although I've got, of course, fine Calvinist friends and colleagues and coworkers who believe that, uh, I don't. I understand that before the foundation of the world, God chose that he would have a people in his son and that this is the destiny of those people, that from beginning to end, this is his plan, this is his purpose, and it's like this. Here is, here is a, a boat, and it's going across the Atlantic Ocean, and God has determined that all those on that boat will arrive from London. They will arrive at New York, all right, after X number of weeks on the water. God has ordained that. God has predestined that. So those on that boat, they start here, they end there. That's their destiny. That's what God has planned for them. Those that are on the boat are on their boat because they responded to God's grace and put their faith in Jesus. So we were not predestined to put our faith in Jesus, but those who put their faith in Jesus are predestined to a certain outcome. That's how I would understand the subject. Obviously, my Calvinist friends would differ with me. Uh, <clears throat> all right, do I have time to try? All right, let's try this. James. What is the best way to go about navigating an evolutionary interpretation of Genesis? I'm a college student and I know a few people who are sincere Christians, but they interpret the Genesis accounts differently as in living things gradually evolved, or in some cases, all species evolved except humans who are unique in their own right. I believe the account laid out in Genesis that kinds were created uniquely and reproduced after themselves. I understand that this is not some prerequisite to salvation, Rather, Romans 10, 9 and 10 declares what is necessary. However, in a culture running so counter to God, how do we reconcile these kinds of differences among Christian brothers and non-Christians alike. Thank you, sir. Okay, you're right that we are not required to believe in a literal creation in Genesis 1, a non-evolutionary creation in terms of species, etc. We're not required to believe that in order to be saved. But I would say that those who deny God's literal creation and that those who hold to a more widespread evolutionary process. In other words, macro evolution, not micro. We recognize that God has set up the species to evolve within themselves. We understand that. And certain species in certain areas will grow differently and evolve. You know, that's the way God set that up. We agree with that. That's not the issue. But macro evolution, Darwinian evolution, we reject. So yes, someone could theoretically be saved and hold to those things, but their foundations are so severely undermined their foundations and believing the clear truth of God's word so foundationally undermined that often what happens is they end up denying other parts of the word and themselves fall away from the gospel because they don't hold to the authority of scripture. What I would say is, be it from a young earth perspective or an old earth perspective, there are solid answers for scientific questions. Whether it's a creation.com young earth perspective or reasons.org, old earth perspective, you will see that there are solid answers for macroevolution, for Darwinian 
evolution uh, from both perspectives. And, and therefore, wherever someone was landing on this, there is no good reason to embrace Darwinian evolution. And, and then it ends up cutting away at the uniqueness of Adam and Eve as well. It, it can be insidious in terms of where it goes. So I would gently encourage those with questions to really ask themselves, if they were not being bombarded by other scientific claims, what does the Bible seem to say plainly and clearly? And what does the rest of scripture seem to repeat and reiterate in terms of God being the creator? And then say, okay, if that's true, let me dig in and see if there are solid answers from credible scientists that can answer these questions. So creation.com, when answers in Genesis, they would give you from a young earth perspective, reasons to believe, reasons.org, they would give you from an old earth perspective, but both would give you solid answers to scientific arguments for macroevolution for Darwinian evolution. All right, we'll be back with some tremendous questions you've asked today, right here on The Line of Fire. God of light, hear our cry, It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on President's Day here on The Line of Fire. Michael Brown, delighted and blessed to be with you. I put out a question last Wednesday on our Facebook page and our Twitter page and said, if you got a big question, you know, a big theology question, a big Bible question, as opposed to a question on a particular verse or something like that, go ahead and post it. And I'll answer as many as I can on President's Day on Monday and within an hour it's flooded with dozens and dozens of great, great questions. So I'm going to keep answering as many as I can. I won't be taking calls. Sit back, enjoy the broadcast. I trust you'll be edified, blessed, encouraged, and challenged. <clears throat> All right, here we go. Gyro. And by the way, our Facebook page has over 580,000 followers. Our Twitter smaller but very active with maybe uh 33 something thousand so we've got a lot of folks interacting with us we appreciate it love it thank you so much for sharing our articles videos being part of our team helping get the message out much appreciated all right gyro we know jesus christ took all diseases and curses for god's children on the cross so why does someone that has been a minister evangelist of jesus for many years suddenly get cancer and dies from cancer if jesus already took all the curses and diseases from whoever repents and gives his life to him, instead of dying like the patriarchs that died of old age. Those are that as hereditary, hereditary curse from our ancestors, but when we repent and are reborn, our sins and curses are cut off, washed away. So why does a person like a minister evangelist for Jesus Christ have to die from cancer if cancer is a curse? There are some, of course, Jairo, who don't agree with your position that when Jesus died on the cross that he took our sicknesses and our pains. They believe that that's metaphorical for sins, that he died for our sins during his earthly healing ministry. He healed our diseases, but he died on the cross for our sins. So we can't expect physical healing in this age. I don't agree with that answer that we can't expect physical healing in this age. I believe that when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he died for the root cause of all of our problems, including physical sickness and disease and ultimately death. And that in this world, and then in the world to come, we'll experience the full benefits of that. So we're all going to die still. We understand that. Many will die of sickness. We understand that. The question is, why, if Jesus paid for our healing, do we get sick? It's the same as the question of sin. When we came to faith in Jesus, 
When we were baptized, what does the Bible say? We died with him. Yes? We died to sin and rose in newness of life. Therefore, sin has no dominion over us. That is a positional spiritual reality, and yet we still struggle with sin. You ever struggled with sin since you've been a believer? Struggled with sin the last day, week, month, year? So even as believers, even though Jesus died to cleanse us from sin and to give us complete victory over sin, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed, right? We have been given everything we need for life and godliness. I go on with, with scripture after scripture. Yet we still sin and fall short in this world. So that's a big question. Why? Because we're still in this world. That's the bottom line. Everything has been done that needs to be done for us throughout eternity. But in this world, there's still sin, there's still temptation, still flesh, still sickness and disease. Now, that being said, many of our sicknesses are self-inflicted. In other words, it's still true that we reap what we sow. So for example, if I was a heavy, uh, excuse me, I start coughing as I say it. Uh, and by the way, if, if you're, if you're watching it, like Dr. Brown, you sound like you'd sounded last week when you had that call. Well, I actually, we're recording this show uh, pre-recording it while I'm still fighting off a cold. So if you happen to notice that, yeah, that's the case. But here I start talking, talking about smoking cigarettes. I've never smoked a cigarette in, in my life. But let's say I had been a lifelong heavy smoker and then I get saved. God forgives me of my sins. But still, I've, I've built up all that ungodly deposit in my lungs. I, maybe I have lung cancer. Now, God can be merciful and heal, but it's also possible that the disease takes its course. I'm reaping what I sowed. A tremendous amount of our illnesses could be avoided if we ate healthily. Tremendous amount. I document that in our book, Our Hand, uh, our hand. Breaking the Stronghold of Food. That's where I document that. All right? Uh, and, and, and lay that out. So there are things that are self-imposed. Maybe I'm just so zealous for the gospel. I push too hard. I push too hard. I don't sleep and I, I wear myself down. Sometimes these things happen. But otherwise, the godliest person you know, disciplined, healthy eating, they love the Lord, they get sick and die. Uh, they're tragic losses, but we're going to keep believing, keep asking for healing. We're going to keep asking, keep praying uh, in, until we have no breath left to do so. Okay. Uh, Jerry Lynn, can you explain in an understandable way the theology of hypostatic union? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if this will be uh, clear or not. All right. But we'll give it a shot. So technical definition that I'm reading off the screen, hypostatic union the combination of divine and human natures in the single person of Christ. So we understand what it means technically, right? That's, that's not the hard part. Can I explain it understandably? Well, I, I feel like I understand it on a certain level, but in other ways, it's, it's a mystery. So here's, here's, how I, here's how I understand it in, in, a, in the simplest way. So the Son of God comes into this world takes on human flesh. So on the one hand, he remains fully God. He is perfect. He is sinless. He, he is absolute purity, absolute divinity. Colossians 2, 9, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him in bodily form. Without question, absolute, unmistakable deity. And based on that, he can forgive sins. Based on that, with the Holy Spirit upon him, he heals the sick, etc. At the same time, he's fully human. That when he was born, he took on human flesh, meaning he had to crawl and learn to walk 
and learn to talk. It, it's not as if while he was laying there in a crib, two weeks old, he was he was thinking about Einstein's theory of relativity. And and then when you know, his parents would tickle him, he'd go, hoo, hoo, hoo. you know, he was making believe. He was making believe that he was learning to talk. No, he literally was a human being, fully human, and develops as a human being and grows as a human being. All right. I, I believe all those things were literally true. At the same time, he was eternal God. So it's an extraordinary thing to think about. Was the Son of God in spirit? in constant communion with the father. Yes. Was the son of God, the spiritual nature of, of Jesus aware of things and understanding things? Certainly. And yet the fleshly restrictions and fleshly limitations were still there. So part of it, it's mystery, how it works out. Part of it is mystery. Uh, on the other hand, the sim- the simple truths of it, we do understand. And, and it's, it's how God reaches out to man. It's how the infinite, eternal, untouchable God comes in our midst and is finite and touchable and, and, and visible and tangible. And that's why he can be tempted. He was tempted at all points as we were, yet without sin. All right, so let's see. Uh, Ismail, human souls lose their free will in heaven. That would be the wrong way to look at it. The right way to look at it is we have chosen our path and get to live out our choice forever. In other words, we've said, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to live for you. I want to be faithful to you. I want to honor you the rest of my days. I don't want to sin. I don't want to disobey. I don't, I don't want to do wrong. Now that will be our nature. That will be our choice and that will be our only choice. There won't be sinful temptations. There, there won't be other choices. Here, let, let's say, and I used this analogy the other day, okay? Let's say you are a, a young man and, and you get married, all right? And, and you used to struggle with lust a lot and your eyes were always wandering for other gals. And you said, Lord, I just want to be faithful to my wife. I don't ever want to commit adultery. Lord, I, I, I don't want to get enslaved to pornography when I'm married or, or be flirting with other women. Lord, help. I'm, I've been so weak. Lord, help me, help me, help me. And God really helps that young man and he really grows in the Lord and the rest of his life. He's faithful to his wife. He never commits adultery and, and, and he, he doesn't flirt with other women and he never gets caught up with porn because God helps him. And now in the world to come, there won't be porn. There won't be other women that he would be attracted to. There, there won't be a fleshly attraction. Those things won't happen anymore. So for eternity, we get to live out what we have chosen by God's grace in this world. Uh, George, did Jesus have absolute knowledge when he was in the flesh? And if so, how can, under- how can we understand that when the Bible mentions that he's been asking normal questions in his daily life? On the one hand, he asks questions because he's drawing things out of us. Doesn't mean he doesn't know the answer, all right? Just like God asks Adam, where were you in Genesis 3? Or God asked Cain in Genesis 4, did you kill your brother Abel? You know, where, where's your brother Abel? All right. So he, he's not asking because he doesn't know. He's asking to solicit information. It could be the same with Jesus, that he knows the answers. He's asking questions to draw things out of people because he knows the answer already. We know there are many things he did know, knew, knew what people were thinking, knew what was in man. And yet he said that he didn't know the day of his return while he was in this world. 
So he didn't know everything. Even though the Son of God remained God, he allowed himself to take on human restrictions at certain points, because of which Jesus did not know everything all the time. And in fact, Jesus worked miracles by the power of the Spirit. And Jesus knew things. He was anointed to preach by the Spirit. So the Spirit enabled him as a human being, fully God, fully man, but the Spirit enabled him to do certain things. That's how God worked through him. So did he have omniscience and he willingly limited that? Well, the consciousness of Jesus was that he did not know everything. The Spirit revealed things to him, but he did not know everything. Otherwise, he would have known the day of his return while he was in this earth. Post-resurrection, of course, he knows everything. All right, uh, I'm going to switch over from Facebook questions to Twitter questions when we come back on this President's Day right here on The Line of Fire. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to The Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. Welcome to our special President's Day broadcast. Here is the question that I posted last Wednesday on our Facebook and Twitter pages. Do you have a big capital B-I-G, Bible or theology question. In other words, not a question about a verse or a word, but a larger question. Post it here now, and I'll answer as many of your questions as possible on Monday's Line of Fire broadcast. Well, within an hour, posting that, probably 70, 80 questions or more. So I spent the first half hour of today's broadcast answering Facebook questions, now switching over to Twitter. But because there's so many great questions, I may, I don't know yet, but I may continue answering these on tomorrow's show as well. All right, here's John, my colleague, John Zmirak, brilliant writer for the stream, stream.org, Catholic author, and uh, one of my favorite men to read on the planet. Uh, his articles, his op-ed pieces are just great on stream.org. That's one of the greatest benefits of being on the stream, having colleagues like John Zmirak and, and Al Parada and others just putting out great, great stuff. So John's got a question for me, and this one is a doozy. It's a doozy for me. At one point in history, would you as a Protestant date the defection of the visible church, bishops, etc., from the true church? These monks who evangelized Europe, real Christians or not, Calvin and Luther each had different answers. Yeah, John, I, I am not entirely sure that I can answer this decisively. I'll do my best. We do know that already in the second century, so some of the disciples of the apostles begin in what's called the Adversus Judaeus literature, begin to separate themselves from some of their Jewish roots. So some of the seeds of later apostasy are so there, even though these are godly men and godly leaders that we would all agree are, in that sense, fathers in the faith. Uh, in my view, a lot of it takes place post-Constantine that it's not just black and white with Constantine. And, and I don't look at him as pr pr primarily responsible for the viewpoints of the Nicene Council and, and 325 AD and things like that. But the consciousness of separation becomes more clear at that point. The, the edicts that the Sabbath can be changed to Sunday become more prominent. 
uh, more traditional theology gets introduced. Now, you look at a St. Patrick and evangelizing Ireland, and, and many Protestants look at him with awe and, and saying God's hand was on him. Uh, you look at others through history. You, you mentioned some of the monks who evangelized Europe. I look at basically the simple messages that were preached. I know that a lot of Catholic dogma comes later in terms of the exaltation of Mary in a certain way or the infallibility of the Pope and things like that. A lot of it comes much later. The celebration of the Mass, the way it's done, comes much later. And those are very serious developments away from the faith, as I understand it, as a Protestant. Remember, as a Messianic Jew, though, that I also see the Protestant church as, as straying in other ways, not, not in ways in terms of, of heresy as, as much as getting off track. So it would all depend on what these monks were preaching. If they preached a basic message of salvation through the cross, if they emphasized the death and resurrection of Jesus, if they emphasize salvation by grace, not works, and added some other things on to it and emphasize the deity of Jesus and God's triunity, etc., then I would see them as believers, but with some traditions that could be nullifying or unhelpful, and certainly we all have them on some level. Uh, but even the difference between Calvin and Luther on that, John, to be honest, I haven't studied their views on it. I I'm not really strong on church history because of my Jewish background and relating to church history differently, not, and then coming to faith in a Pentecostal church where there wasn't a lot of consciousness of church history or the creeds. It was more a matter of going directly back to scripture. Uh, my perspective is a little different, but I do know what Paul warned about in Romans 11, boasting against the natural branches began to happen pretty early on. And that now sows the seeds for other errors that become more serious and even more apostate. And I'd love to find out more about your thoughts on my point. So if you get to listen to the show, John, that's where we'll tackle it. Uh, Joshua. All right, I, I answered that one. Uh, it was just a question about getting a signed book. Brian, what's your overall opinion of the house church movement? Similar to the charismatic movement closer to the early church, more biblical, great potential done right with exceptions to those who abuse it. Or a trend for the worst, if a good trend, how best to expand it? Well, the house church movement has been with us since the early church and continues around the world today, uh, continues powerfully around the world today, and has been growing steadily in the States for years and years and years now. And, you know, Paul writes to the church in so-and-so's house. My fullest statement on it, Brian, is found in my book, Revolution in the Church, Challenging the Religious System with a Call for Radical Change. Revolution in the Church. That is where you'll get my fullest statement on the subject, and I encourage you to read that carefully where I weigh in. Uh, what are the benefits of house church? You have an environment where people get to know each other better. You have an environment where there's more relationship, more encouragement, potentially more accountability. You have an environment where more people can grow using different gifts they have to teach, to lead worship, to operate in the spiritual gifts, etc. You have a more simple, organic way to get unbelievers to join you. Hey, come over to my house. We're having a Bible study, etc., cetera, uh, you can mobilize more people to action more quickly in a house church setting. You don't have a lot of expenses of building and gatherings and things like that. So as long as you have godly leadership, as long as it's not each one for himself or herself, as long as there is not elitism, we're better than the organized church. We've come out of Babylon, those kind of notions, then wonderful. 
Uh, my son-in-law, Ryan, leads a house church, a small house church network. My colleague, Bob Gladstone, one of our key fire faculty and, and close co-worker now for over 22 years, he leads a house church network. Uh, friends of mine around the world are involved in house churches. And I have friends that are mega church pastors. And I've preached in some of the finest mega churches around the world. And some of them are thriving and healthy and strong. Some of them are hybrid. They're a mega church and yet with a strong house church or, or cell group foundation. Others are, are all corporate meeting. When Andy Stanley was on the radio with me, he said the only numerical goal in his church is to get 100,000 people into a small group discipleship. That's their numerical goal. So I, I believe one way or another, you, you need smaller gatherings to really be discipled, to really grow, that, that those are really helpful, but that we don't want to have an elitist attitude as if only small meetings are good. I love big meetings. I love ministering in large settings and small as well. So get my book, Revolution in the Church. Okay, A.H., uh, -H, uh, does the Bible teach that when a person dies, they go to hell or heaven? Can you explain the concept of Sheol, Tartarus, Gehenna? If there's people in hell right now, are they going to be taken out of hell in Judgment Day and thrown again into hell? I hope my English is good enough. Okay, uh, I answered some of this in the first half of the broadcast. So if you were listening to today's show, you know I already answered this question that my understanding is upon death, our spirits go to either be with God, to a place of blessing, or separate from him in what would be called hell or Hades, awaiting the final resurrection. What does it say in Revelation 20 that death and hell are cast into the lake of fire? So death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. So it would seem that the state of the ungodly dead is like someone who has been arrested and put in prison waiting for trial. When trial comes, they're formally sentenced and then sent off. It would seem to be the same thing. As for Sheol, Sheol is a place of the dead kind of a shadowy existence in the Old Testament, or it could simply mean the grave. That's all, not, not a physical burial, but the grave meaning the, the netherworld for the dead and just a place where, where people cease to exist or have kind of a shadowy existence. The revelation becomes clearer as we get later in the Old Testament than into the New Testament. Uh, but it is not the equivalent of Lake of Fire. It's not the equivalent of Gehenna. There are different words there. Tartarus, another dimension of, of hell, or of the negative netherworld that Judaism, Judaism had these different compartments of hell, but the New Testament doesn't tell us that much. It just makes reference to some of these different things. For sure, though, final state is, is eternal blessing or eternal punishment. That's, that's clear from Scripture. Uh, <clears throat> let's see. Kerrigan, in this hour of many deceptions worldwide, just as the Lord said it would be in Matthew 24, which do you think is the greatest, most dangerous one for Christians to be aware of, not being ignorant of the enemy's schemes? A great question, Kerrigan. I would say that if you ask a thousand different Christian leaders, you'll get hundreds of different responses, and they'll probably all be good, and they'll probably all be valid. And if you ask me a hundred straight days, depending on my frame of mind or what I was focused on or looking at on any given day, I, I might give you a different answer each day. So as, as I step back and think, if, if I had to say any, any one deception, I, I would say the heart of it is that which denies the lordship of Jesus. That the heart of the deception is anything that denies Jesus being our Lord. 
So whether it's that we can do whatever we want and we still get in, whether it's that he has no authority, whether it's that he's basically here to just make us happy. I've often said that the American gospel can be summarized as this is who I am. This is how I feel. And God is here to please me. But the biblical gospel is this is who God is. This is how he feels. And we are here to please him. To me, that's a very, very fundamental error that is pervasive and growing in the church today. It comes down to a denial to the authority of the Lord Jesus. And with that, a denial of the authority of the word of God. Those would be great deceptions of, of tremendous consequence in my view. Uh, let's see here. Do I have time for one more question? Uh, Trelda, does God keep a record of wrongs of those who are already saved in order to give special rewards and ranks in heaven? Is there a hierarchy of merit in heaven according to what we've done? I don't believe this, but some pastors have this elaborate addition to the work of the cross. First, a record of wrongs is totally separate. A record of wrongs is God's going to hold against, ah, three years ago you did this. Yeah, but Lord, you forgave me. Ah, that's three years ago it's held against you. So I don't, I don't see that. Yeah, when God says he forgets, he casts our sins into the sea, remembers them no more, I believe that's metaphorical. He still knows what we did, but he doesn't hold it against us. It's as if it never existed. But we will give account. Feldhoff, this is not in addition to the work of the cross. Romans 14, we will give account to God. 2 Corinthians 5, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and some will have greater reward than others. No question about it. I see it will all be equally forgiven, equally God's children forever. But absolutely, there will be greater rewards for some. The parables of Jesus teach that and the fact that we have to give account to God. Absolutely. Now, it may be that our capacity is, old, is what we get. And that's how it works out. I'll come back to this on the other side of the break. Give us strength to always do what's right. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Blessings to you on this President's Day. Michael Brown answering your questions that have been previously posted on Facebook and Twitter. And boy, have even some of the best questions. I asked for big Bible theology questions, not so much specific verses, and boy, a lot of great questions. So I, I want to return to the, the question about rewards in the world to come. What if it works like this? What if by your obedience to the Lord, you follow him diligently, you serve him joyfully for decades, all right? You sacrifice for the kingdom, and now you stand before him, and, and your capacity to receive joy, your capacity to know God, experience God is greater because of your walk with him. So your reward is greater because your capacity is greater. Could that be? Now, look, we are saved by grace. So as far as salvation, it's all equal. You can be saved the last split second of your life, or you can follow Jesus sacrificially for 90 years, and you're still saved the same way, by grace, and forever will be with the Lord, forgiven, saved, forever. There's going to be no ghettos in heaven, all right? There are going to be no shanties in heaven. There are going to be no places where you don't feel welcome in heaven. Saved is saved. But yes, there are rewards. The parables of Jesus talk about different rewards. And again, Romans 14 and 2 Corinthians 5 talk about giving account to God. The book that best gets into that is by Joseph Son. Now, I, I, I think 
that the way he wrote the book, that the publisher thought that they won't get song correct. But let me just see here. Uh, I spelled it wrong. Let me try and see if the book is still available because it was considered very challenging theologically and I own the book. Okay, maybe it's under Joseph Tsong, T-S-O-N. Let's try. Let's see. Uh, uh, Partners in Suffering. Uh, Is that it? Hmm. Doesn't seem to be available. Well, it's a pamphlet. Anyway, Joseph Tsong, if you can find it, T-S-O-N, wrote a great book about future reward. And I believe that we will experience that. On the one hand, there's not going to be regret like, man, you got it better than me in heaven. It's just not right. You got it better. I got like a lousy, I got the lousy draw. Right? You know, I got the, you know, God was not in a good mood when he's giving out rewards. And No, I don't believe there'll be any of that. Not at all. But I also believe that God's just and that, we, and that we reap what we sow and that it's relational. And there are rewards that, that come. But it could be that we each receive to the maximum we're able to receive. So I'm totally full. You're totally full. I don't look at you as being fuller than me, but you have a greater capacity to be filled because you had a greater relationship with God. Could be. We shall see. But there is something about giving account that's serious. All right. Uh, Kathy, we see many videos on YouTube of believers who were brought to hell. They speak of torture by demons. Why would the Lord give demons this fun? It looks as if they're being rewarded versus condemned till the future time of being sent to the lake of fire for eternity. Okay. Number one, I don't base any theology on anybody's vision. I don't care how powerful the vision is. I base theology on what's written in scripture. That's the first thing. So I have no idea. If a thousand people had the same experience, I have no idea if it's true or not. That's the first thing. Second thing is, could it be that people experienced torment by demons and thought that they were in hell, that they experienced this kind of demonic torment of God showing them what it's like to be separated from him in this world. And they were overcome by, by these demonic powers that were tormenting and, and terrifying them. And they mistook that for hell possible. Is it that someone cast into hell after death is tormented by demons and then the demons get tormented later? So they, well, you said, as you asked, why do they get to have their fun? Now, I don't see any basis for that. I don't see any basis for Satan overseeing hell and for demons torturing people in hell. I don't see any basis for that scripture. Now, I'm not denying people's experiences or saying that it all must be wrong, but I don't see any scriptural support for it. And therefore, when someone says this is what happened in hell, my thought is, is maybe that's what they thought would happen when they had hell-like experience. That's how they felt it or experienced it or, or projected into it. Don't know. Don't know. All right. Uh, Alfredo. Uh, is social justice in the broadest sense diametrically opposed to theology proper? Oh, no, certainly not. Certainly not. Uh, for example, if, if I am looking at the nature of God and I talk about God's justice, how can then the practice of justice be separated from the theology of justice? If I'm talking about mercy, and so I'm just doing theology, I'm looking at the divine attributes. God is merciful. Well, what does that mean? Be perfect. Matthew 5, 48 is your heavenly father is perfect. First John 4 is as he is, so are we in this world. So we are to emulate his character. Ephesians 5, be imitators of God, therefore his dearly beloved children. So absolutely, a lot of social justice is 
being imitators of God. Being imitators of God is based on theology of God, correct? Isn't it? So, yeah, not diametrically opposed in the least. Uh, I'm not sure to pronounce this name. Dagvidur, Dagvidur maybe. What's your view on Barth's theology? I am not well-read in Karl Barth at all. I, I know the depth of his influence as a neo-Orthodox theologian. I have read things from Barth of extraordinary spiritual penetration, of amazing insight, of great Jesus-exalting interpretation of Scripture, and then other things that would be considered less orthodox. However, because I have not read widely in Barth, because I am not a theologian, my scholarship is in Bible and biblical interpretation and related languages and related literature, but I am not primarily a theologian. My viewpoint is very superficial. And that was just what I told you, that I've read some things of Barth that are glorious and wonderful and powerful and other things that make me see his view as less than orthodox. So I've, I've, I'll freely quote him if I think it's a good quote. If it's an edifying quote, he's influential enough. But understanding that there'd be some areas of fundamental difference that I would have with him. How deep are they? I don't know because I haven't read him enough. You say, how in the world? you will be saved for 47 years and you're 63 years old and you're a professor at seminaries and you wrote all these books and you don't know more about Bart. Hey, I don't. That's the deal. I know a lot of things about a lot of other areas and a lot of other areas I don't know anything and some in between. That's just the deal. Can't be expert in everything. All right. Uh, James, uh, <clears throat> in Psalm 114.1, I think he meant 144.1, God trains David's hands for war. Also in Isaiah 10, God describes the Assyrians as a rod of his anger. Do you take these passages metaphorically, that God empowered David to become trained in battle, that God removes his hand of protection over Israel? By the way, I'm not a Calvinist. I was just interested on your take on passages like that, describing God's actions involving people in a very strong, active manner. Oh, no question. I, I take it literally that God literally trained David's hands for war, that he was, he was helped by God to take down uh, Goliath. And come on, he says, you know, he killed a lion and he killed a bear. When they came and stole one, you know, one of the sheep, he went after them. So God helped him, just just like God put verses in him, you know, to write and music and things like that. Yeah, he was a warrior trained by God. Look, they were fighting God's battles, then. they were fighting the enemies of Israel, and and God helped him be a better warrior. Now we would use the verses metaphorically about spiritual warfare and things like that, but yeah, those verses hold true. As for Assyria. A rod of his anger, it wasn't just that he removed the Senate protection. He actively raised up Assyria to bring judgment. But Assyria went too far, therefore God judged Assyria. But I interpret those passages literally. Assyria literally was the rod of his anger. Nebuchadnezzar literally was God's servant. They were raised up to bring judgment, but they each went too far and therefore were judged themselves. Um, Mirtika is the clear overall biblical guidelines on how elders, pastors are held accountable and remunerated with all these pastors making 300,000 and 500,000 plus living million dollar homes with finances not open in some churches. What is the threat in scripture to God is here? Number one, the vast, 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 v
of pastors are not making 300,000 a year or 500,000 a year. All right. I don't, I don't personally know a single pastor that makes that much personally. Okay. And, and as far as ministry leaders that I know, I, I, and I'm, I don't know everybody, obviously, but I don't personally know any ministry leaders that, that uh, make that much. Okay. Personally, I, I'm not, now I know there are plenty out there and some make several million a year. All right. But that's first thing. The vast majority of pastors don't make a lot of money. That's first thing. Second thing, a million dollar home, some places it's not that much. It's, it's very relative. You know, you can go to California and a million dollars, some areas you don't, you don't get much of anything. And in other areas, you, you, you can get you know, four mansions for that amount of money. But the key is that we must be as leaders free from the love of money. Mentioned in Hebrews 13 and then 1 Timothy 6. We should be free from the love of money. Our testimonies should be good, open testimonies that don't bring reproach to the gospel. And if we're in public ministry, then there should be some level of public accountability. And with that, if you are part of a church and you give to that church, then the church books should be available to you so that you can know certain things, so that you know where your money is going. And where that line is drawn directly is 50,000 okay? Is 100,000 okay? Is 200,000 okay? Is 10,000 okay? Different communities, different backgrounds. There are churches that are wealthy churches and they want their pastor to be adequately compensated. There are other churches where the pastor has to work full time just to serve the flock. But let us all be godly stewards. Let us all be free from the love of money if we are to be leaders in the body. Let us be above reproach. Back with you tomorrow, right here on The Line of Fire.